This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dead Bart, written by K.L. Simpson. You know how Fox has weird ways of counting Simpson episodes? They refuse to count a couple of them, making the amount of episodes inconsistent. The reason for this is a lost episode from season one. Let me explain. Finding details about this missing episode is very difficult. No one who was working on the show at the time likes to talk about it. From what was pieced together, the lost episode was written entirely by Matt Growing. During production of the first season, Matt started to act strangely. He was very quiet, seemed a bit nervous and morbid. Mentioning this to anyone who was present results to them getting very angry and forbidding you to even mention it to Matt. The episode's production number was 7G44. The title was Dead Bart. Asking anyone who was on the show about this will cause them to do everything they can to stop you from directly communicating with Matt Groening. At a fan event, I managed to follow him after... He spoke to the crowd, and eventually had the chance to talk to him alone as he was leaving the building. He didn't seem upset that I followed him, probably expected a typical encounter with an obvious fan. When I mentioned the lost episode, though, all color drained from his face and he started mumbling and trembling. When I asked him if he could tell me any details, he sounded like he was on the verge of tears. He grabbed the piece of paper, wrote something on it, and handed it to me. He begged me to never mention that episode again. The piece of paper had a website address on it. I would rather not say what it was, for reasons you'll see in a second. I entered the address into my browser, and I came to a site that was completely black, except for a line of yellow text, a download link. I clicked on it and the file started downloading. Once the file downloaded, my computer went crazy. It was the worst virus I have ever seen. System restore did not work, the entire computer had to be rebooted. Before doing this though, I copied the file into a CD. I tried to open it on my now empty computer and as I suspected, there was an episode of The Simpsons on it. The episode started off like any other episode, but had a very poor quality animation. If you've seen the original animation for Some Enchanted Evening, it was similar, but less stable. The first act was fairly normal, but the way the characters acted was uh, a little bit off. Homer seemed angrier, Marge seemed depressed, and Lisa seemed anxious. Bart seemed to have genuine anger and hatred for his parents. The episode was about the Simpsons going on a plane trip. Near the end of the first act, the plane was taken off. Bart was fooling around, as you'd expect. However, as the plane was about 50 feet off the ground, Bart broke a window on the plane and was sucked out. 
At the beginning of the series, Matt had an idea that the animation style of The Simpsons world represented life, and that death turned things more realistic. This was used in the episode. The picture of Bart's corpse was barely recognizable. They took full advantage of it not having to move, and made it an almost photorealistic drawing of his dead body. Act 1 ended with the shot of Bart's corpse. When Act 2 started, Homer, Marge, and Lisa were sitting on their table, crying. The crying went on and on, and it got more pained, and sounded more realistic. The animation started to decay even more as they cried, and you could hear murmuring in the background. This crying went on for all of Act 2. Act 3 opened with a title card saying, One year had passed. Homer, Marge, and Lisa were skeletally thin and still sitting at the table. There was no sign of Maggie or the pets. They decided to visit Bart's grave. Springfield was completely deserted, and as they walked to the cemetery, the house became more and more decrepit. They all looked abandoned when they got to the grave. Bart's body was lying in front of the tombstone, looking like it did at the end of Act 1. The family started crying again. Eventually, they stopped and just stared at Bart's body. The camera zoomed in at Homer's face. According to summaries, Homer tells a joke at this part, but it isn't audible in the version I saw. You can't tell what Homer is saying. The view zoomed out as the episode came to a close. The tombstone in the background had the names of every Simpson guest star on them. Some that no one had heard of in 1989. Some that haven't even been on the show yet. All of them had death dates on them. For guests who died since, like Michael Jackson and George Harrison, the dates were there when they would die. You can try to use the tombstone to predict the death of living Simpson guest characters. But there's something odd about most of the ones who haven't died yet. All of their deaths are listed as the same date. Lavender Town Syndrome, written by Anonymous. The Lavender Town Syndrome also known as Lavender Town Tone, or Lavender Town Suicides, was a peak in suicides and illness of children between the ages of 7 and 12, shortly after the release of Pokemon Red and Green in Japan, back in February 27, 1996. Rumors say that these suicides and illnesses only occurred after the children playing the game reached Lavender Town whose theme music had extremely high frequencies that studies showed that only children and young teens can hear, since their ears are more sensitive. Due to the lavender tone, at least 200 children supposedly committed suicide, and many more developed illnesses and afflictions. The children who committed suicide usually did so by hanging or jumping from heights. Those who did not act irrationally complained of severe headaches after listening to Lavender Town's theme. 
Although Lavender Town now sounds differently depending on the game, this mass hysteria has caused by the first Pokemon game released. After the Lavender Tone incident, the programmers had fixed Lavender Town's theme music to be a lower frequency, and since then, the children were no longer affected by it. One video appeared in 2010 using special software to analyze the audio of Lavender Town's music. When played, the software created images of the unknown near the end of the audio. This raised a controversy since the unknown didn't appear until the Generation 2 games. Silver, Gold, and Crystal. The unknown translate to leave now. There is also the said beta version of Lavender Town. It is said that the beta version of Pocket Monsters was released on some kids to test the games. There is a video in the description down below. The Statue, written by Anonymous. A few years ago, a mother and father decided they needed a break, so they wanted to head out for a night on the town. They called their most trusted babysitter. When the babysitter arrived, the two children were already fast asleep in bed, so the babysitter just got to sit around and make sure everything was okay with the children. Later that night, the babysitter got bored and went to watch TV. But she couldn't watch it downstairs because they did not have cable downstairs. The parents didn't want children watching too much garbage. So, she called them and asked them if she could watch cable in the parents' room. Of course, the parents said it was okay. But the babysitter had one final request. She asked if she could cover up the angel statue outside the bedroom window with a blanket or cloth because it made her nervous. The phone line went silent for a moment. And the father who was talking to the babysitter at that time said, Take the children and get out of the house, and we will call the police. We don't own an angel statue. The police found both of the children and the babysitter slumped in pools of their own blood within three minutes of the call. No statue was found. The Hole Behind the Clock, written by Liam. These following pages were found buried in the backyard of a small house in near an old fire pit. The school that is being mentioned in these pages have been removed and is. This is day one of these notebook entries, 4-12-09. At my school, in each classroom, the clock is on a vent hole, as far as people know. I swear I can hear things coming from back there. It is almost screaming, but muted. It echoes, but no one hears it. Entry 2, 4-19-09. The screams have gotten worse. They are full-on blood-curdling howls at this point. Everyone swears there is nothing. I'm questioning my own sanity. Entry 3, 5-8-09. The screams finally stopped. Now it is little chirps. I can't stand it. Still, no one says they hear anything. I'm now not the only one questioning my own sanity. Entry 4, 53109. I'm going to investigate this problem soon. I can't stand it much longer. Entry 5, 
6909. Yesterday I stayed at school after hours. They had no clue. I almost got caught a couple of times, but I made it out into the 8th grade science room. I took off the vent cover with some screwdrivers that I brought in my bag. All I saw was darkness. All the lights were off, and it was getting dark outside. I forgot my flashlight, but luckily I got a newish phone, so these new things are amazing. I turned on the flashlight on my phone, which had never been used before. My phone was one out of five bars, almost out of battery. But of course, the flashlight hardly helped. With the slight amount of light that it did give off, I looked in it and immediately dropped it down. I dropped my flashlight down. I couldn't see a thing. I waited a second and blurted out, Is there anyone down there? I still don't quite know why the hell I did that. I regret that decision. God, why did I do that? There were a few seconds of silence, but it felt like minutes. Eventually, I saw some of the light reflect back at me. Two little dots. My phone's battery died. I dropped it on the ground and left my stuff and bolted as fast as I could. Now I have to explain to my mom why the school has my phone. They kept it so they could know who broke in. They definitely know since I asked for my phone back the next day. I won't be updating this again. This is the last entry. I will rip out and hide these pages. I will be burning the rest of this journal. Goodbye. Friends. Written by Vish P. I don't remember much about my childhood like most people. Those memories are always vague and eventually you realize whatever you remember is probably just a reconstructed memory. You don't have much choice in the matter and are usually convinced that your memory would never fail you. The first memory I have was when I was five. I'm not sure if it's real or not, but that's when I think I met Michael. I never had friends, so I was glad when I met him. He called me Jack, and I liked it. As uncertain I am if I remember our first encounter, there is no doubting the strong bond we immediately formed. I won't bore you with the details of what we did every day for the past few years, but I will outline some of the things we did together to assure even the most skeptical among the readers of our friendship. Michael, being a slightly effeminate child, did not have many friends at school either. He was bullied, and the highlight of his day was coming home and sharing a cup of tea with me, all the while telling me of his woes and lessening his burden. The tea, unlike my words of consultation, was make-believe. Another one of his favorite activities was cutting my hair. He would style it in all sorts of ways, and I enjoyed each one of them. Fortunately for him, my hair grew really fast, and he often got a chance to restyle it. There was one thing that constantly strained our relationship. Don't get me wrong, Michael and I had absolutely no hard feelings towards each other. It was his parents. I don't think they approved of me, and I couldn't tell you why even if I tried. It wasn't just disapproval. I began to think they hated me. The longer our friendship lasted, the worse it got. It pains me to even think about it, so I won't dwell on this for long. As quickly as our relationship had initially flourished, it began to diminish after two years. Michael grew to become a stocky football player, 
and I remained exactly the same way as before, scrawny and completely incapable of any athletic sport. He made new friends and started to ignore me. This hurt me a lot, especially since I was there for him in his time of need. His abandoning me was the last thing I expected, and it hit me hard. I felt like I had no one left in the world. As I sit in the corner of the room and write this, I can see Michael and his friends watching TV sometimes. It seems like he notices me and looks my way, but I know better. I have now resigned to my fate. He created me. But he forgot to destroy me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everlasting Darkness, written by Anonymous. It happens every night, the minute before midnight. I feel its slimy tendrils swirling in the air at the foot of my bed. I want to scream, but absolute fear paralyzes me. I close my eyes and wait for the things to slip under my blanket and try to pull me off. They always slip off, though. At the last moment, where my body is teetering at the edge of the bed. Control of my body slowly returns and I crawl back up my bed, holding back sobs so I don't bother the other tenants. I remember the first time it happened to me. I had spent the whole day thinking about a girl. I always wanted to ask her out, but she was a freshman and I was a senior. I didn't want everyone to think that I'm a pedophile or something. But there she was, swinging at the playground, I passed on the way to my house every day. It was the first time we were alone out of school. I gathered up the courage and walked up to her. Mind if I take this swing? I asked as I walked slowly toward the swing next to her. She kept her eyes down and her long brown hair waved a little in the wind. She didn't say anything so I sat down and started swinging a little. I wasn't really paying attention, but just as I was about to ask her out, she had snuck up next to me racked my arm with her sharp nail screaming something in a foreign language. She stabbed me in the throat with her finger and gave me a creepy doll laugh. I just lay in the little pit under the swing completely frozen. She skipped away. I think her name was Anne? That night I woke up in a cold sweat at 11.59pm. Weird, I had thought. I usually slept like a baby until morning. That's when I saw those tendrils swirling just beyond my vision creating unseen shapes. I threw the blanket over my head praying it would protect me from whatever monster lurked. It didn't. I screamed and clawed at my bed while it dragged me toward the edge, slipping off at the last second. The slime soaked my legs as I curled up and sobbed as my parents burst in. They tried to comfort me, but I knew. I knew they never would believe me. I knew they thought I'd just wet the bed or something, but I know now I should have told them. At least tried to convince them, because now I have no, no one to turn to. Every night for five years I fought back screaming at the top of my lungs. I wait every night wishing for it to finally pull me off and kill me. 
I wish for death with every step I take toward my bed. I set the alarm for eight every night, hoping that I might not be able to hear it. I decided tonight was the night. I will bring an end to this. I brought a big kitchen knife to bed. I slashed at the tentacles as they slid up my leg, but the knife passes through it like a shadow, and I cut my leg. It is only then that I realize the tendrils have always been in my imagination, but I can no longer get rid of them. They have become a dirty, evil part of me. So I keep slashing the knife all over my body until weakness causes my limbs to numb and I drop the knife. I lay there with blood flowing through all my cuts all over my body, and I feel a sense of peace before my eyes fade into everlasting darkness. Tree, written by The Wandering Mythsman, a friend of a dark closet podcast. I don't leave my room often, not anymore anyways. My parents and I constantly fight, so I avoid them until it's time to eat. I sit at my desk and draw. I use my anger to draw things only anger could make. I made monsters. I needed inspiration for this one, and with a fresh batch of rage, I examined a tree. It almost had a human shape to it but it wasn't as tall as it should be. I drew it exactly how I saw it. I was disappointed. It was just a drawing of a vaguely human-shaped tree, but, but when I looked back at the tree, I couldn't find the human features it had. I realized the tree had moved, but it was still rooted to the ground. Was it looking at me? That's outrageous. I, I took a drink of water from the bathroom sink across the hallway. I guess I was just lightheaded. I would have passed out from dehydration, if not. So I sat back down and wiped my face dry. I reshaped the drawing to look more, much more human. Just then a bird slammed into my window and tumbled down the roof. Right in front of the tree, identical to my drawing, but its face, it had eyes and a large abyss which could only resemble a mouth opened wide as if it was silently screaming in agony. But the drawing, to my shock, was changed as well. Now the eyes and mouth had suddenly appeared on the drawing, as if I did it myself. This was crazy. I ran over to the window, only to see the tree gone. My drawing as well was gone. My head was boiling hot, and it was hurting. I was just sick. I'm just sick. I fell asleep at three in the afternoon that day, a very blissful sleep, only to wake up to the sound of a branch tapping my window. I'm Downstairs, written by Matthew Stacks. The clock struck midnight. I was on my laptop in my bedroom, browsing through YouTube videos. However, my browsing stopped when my phone vibrated. I saw that I received a text message from my friend Ben. Hey man, I'm outside by the back door. Can you let me in? I knew he was lying, 
For the last few weekends, he had been messing with me. One weekend he told me he was parked in my cul-de-sac, when in reality, he was in his bedroom. The following weekend, he told me that he was coming over to hang out. When I came outside to greet him in his car, he floated out of the neighborhood. I wasn't going to let him get me this time. I sent a reply back. I know you're just messing with me again. He immediately replied back. No, I'm being serious this time. I am by the back door. Nice try. I know you're not there. I placed my phone down and continued my search. About a minute later, my phone vibrated again. I'm downstairs. I replied. Ben, you can't troll me three weekends in a row. However, I'll give you A for effort. I placed my phone down again. I wasn't going to play his little game. As I was about to continue my search, I started to hear something from the deafening silence of my dark house. I faced the doorway behind me and listened closely. It sounded like footsteps, silent footsteps walking around downstairs. It was nerve-wracking. I couldn't believe it. Was my mind playing tricks on me? Or was Ben actually in my house? I grabbed my phone. Are you joking with me, man? I continued to listen as my phone vibrated again. No, I told you I was downstairs, but you didn't believe me. I was quite relieved that it was him, but I was pissed off that he broke into my house. I could hear him walking around downstairs still, and I waited for him to come up to my bedroom. I grabbed my phone again. Are you going to come upstairs? I can hear you walking around downstairs. Just come up already. I sent the message and waited for him to respond. I was starting to get a little annoyed after a few minutes of waiting. I got up from my bed and went to the doorway. I proceeded to shout downstairs. Get upstairs already. Stop messing around. I sat back on my bed as I began to hear him walk upstairs. Suddenly my phone vibrated again. It was a text message from Ben. You know I was just messing with you, right? My heart dropped. I looked up at the doorway to see my killer smiling at me. Wristbands Written by Anonymous When you are admitted to the hospital, they place on your wrist a white wristband with your name on it. But there are other different colored wristbands which symbolize other things. The red wristbands are placed on dead people. There was one surgeon who worked on night shifts in a school hospital. He had just finished an operation and was on his way down to the basement. He entered the elevator and there was just one other person there. He casually chatted with the woman while the elevator descended. When the elevator door opened, another woman was about to enter when the doctor slammed the close button and punched the button to the highest floor. Surprised, the woman reprimanded the doctor for being rude and asked why he did not let the other woman in. The doctor said, That was the woman I just operated on. She died while I was doing the operation. Didn't you see the red wristband she was wearing? The woman smiled, raised her arm, and said, Something like this? Red Room Written by D. Compton Ambrose Henry had gone missing in Mexico weeks ago, and Lois kept getting these bizarre letters in the mail. She had assumed the first four envelopes she received in the first four days of the month afterwards were to the wrong address or a mistake. However, 
The fifth envelope contained a blank sheet of paper with a word that would haunt her for weeks. Husband is what it said. Lois felt her blood run cold. The first four notes had read, I will return and your, respectively. The sixth one was anonymous, only it read. After this, Lois got online to search how to contact the Mexican authorities, running into a little luck. Her conversations with police and her representatives went the same way, and all led to dead ends. After the message reached, if you can correctly guess, Lois was beginning to lose it. It read, I will return your husband only if you can correctly guess what I will do to him, was the terse message that was spelled out with newspaper clippings. The nature of the words began on separate sheets of paper seemed unnecessary if this was the message the entire time. On the back of the final sheet of paper, reading him, was a website address, www.analogbrowser.com, and that was all she had to go on. The website was unimpressive, nothing more than a series of images and logos, with a small link in the center. When she clicked on it, the analog browser began to download onto her laptop, along with a Word document. In the document was a web address, with a notable difference in the domain registry. The address was simple, u.analog. After the program was finished downloading and running, the browser, reminiscent of Oprah, emerged on her screen and Lois entered the address into the search bar. A red chat room appeared on her screen. Before Lois could even begin writing a message, a series of bobbing dots appeared into the text field, preceded by the words, Username is typing. She froze. Her eyes locked on the small red box. The dots continued to hop up and down. The text, Username, is typing, remained. Seconds went by. Minutes. The world outside the glowing white square with the red box inside of it became discolored and grainy. As Lois stared holes into her laptop, as if trying to will her husband's kidnapper into action. And still, the bobbing continued. The dots had all but replaced her very thoughts with a series of characters popped into existence. Lois wrenched her chair across the floor and dove face first into the laptop, guzzling the words on the screen, which read, I will return your husband only if you can correctly guess what I will do to him. Lois's left eye twitched involuntarily. The text, username, is typing, returned to the screen. The text that replaced it seconds later read, And I cannot lie, whether you guess correctly or not. She was about to answer, but hesitated. What if he would not return Henry? As Lois was about to type again, she hesitated one more time then that would mean he was lying about. The reality of the situation began to dawn on her. Lois didn't understand why this was happening. 
she thought, if he's both simultaneously lying and telling the truth, then there has to be a third option. The third option couldn't be that Henry was the man writing the notes and had faked his own kidnapping. His car was out front, and when she dropped him off the airport, he said he'd call her when he landed, and he didn't. Furthermore, if this person, had it been possible he were Henry, were simultaneously lying and telling the truth, then he couldn't be Henry to begin with. That left her with an oddly terrifying answer. She wasn't really here. Henry wasn't really there. And the situation was the result of a repressed memory. Lois went back over the events in her head, leaving the house with Henry, driving to the airport, dropping him off, getting the call about the laptop being on, and not to look at it, seeing the red room on the browser, the argument, his second call, and then her waiting on the third call that never came. It was all bizarre to be sure, but one thing that stood out to her upon analyzing the day's events was the red room. She recalled multiple times stopping to get a timestamp, but each time pulled farther and deeper into the horrific website. That's when it hit her. She couldn't remember what day it was. She didn't even know what time of the day it was. Not even day or night. She imagined going back home. She'd imagine it was just his business trip, not hers. She'd imagine it was his laptop, not hers. She'd imagine she was home, but she was not. She'd imagine it all to distract her, to distract from the pain. She didn't get a good look at the room before she died, but she knew one thing. It was red. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. My Sister Loves Minions. Written by Matthew Pruitt. My Sister Loves Minions. The yellow banana-eating, overall-wearing... Big-eyed things from a family movie called Despicable Me? Yep, that's the one. The things you see middle-aged women post memes on Facebook. My sister is obsessed. She eats bananas daily, watches the movies, probably has a plush of every minion made. I never paid any mind. I mean, they are kind of cute. I like that you couldn't understand their gibberish, but at the same time, you could piece it together. She's dressed up as one of them for the past several years for Halloween and, of course, wears their swag all year. So I figured I could maybe save some hard-earned money from my part-time job and get tickets to Universal Studio. That would be the perfect birthday present for her. You only turn 10 once. She cried her eyes out and gave me a huge hug. You're the best brother ever! I sure felt like it. She was excited on the ride up. She was singing along to the radio and ready to have fun. We made sure to get to the parks early so we could enjoy the day all day. She was the first person in line to meet the minions. 
I took her pictures and she was so happy she was crying and clinging on to the characters. Then things seemed a bit off. Universal is a huge park with other great things offered, so naturally I wanted to see the Harry Potter world and other things. I motioned to her to follow me to the ride nearby. She was so happy her face glowed, but I told her that it was time for her that we found another ride with other characters. But it's like she wasn't listening. Instead, she was walking back to the line to meet the minions. Harper, come on, I begged her. Screw off, she screamed in reply. I stood stunned for a moment, in disbelief. What did you just say? I want to meet Kevin. Screw off. Harper, you can't say that. Fine, leave me here and go see Harry Potter stuff. I'll be here when you get back. It wasn't like her. She is sweet and kind. I have never seen her be like this before. I gave in, as stupid as that was. I mean, it was her birthday present from me, but I was sure gonna tell mom and dad later. Eventually, she gave in and let me see a few things, but she kept staring at her pictures with the yellow mascots, even when we were eating. She kept talking about it. We were around those things for hours, probably. Even when it was time to go home, she threw a big temper tantrum. She didn't want to see the night shows or anything. She had spent all of her birthday money on minion merchandise. The card ride home was worse. She wouldn't even talk to me. She gifted me with the silent treatment and acted as if I never have seen her before. It really upset me considering I spent several hundred dollars on her gift, which took considerable effort to save up. I made the mistake of telling my parents about how weird she was acting. They decided to ground her, a fitting punishment of no television for two weeks, which meant no minions or despicable me. I figured I needed to calm down, so I went to a friend's house for the night for conversations and beer. But I never expected to see a crime scene investigation when I came home around lunch the very next day. I wish the officer would have caught me before I sprinted in. The house had rotting banana peels on it, and my parents laid on the floor. They were there for hours. Their skins were painted yellow, both their heads shaved, and eyeballs were missing and replaced with plush minion eyes. Stab wounds covered them. The officer told me they came in and she was watching Despicable Me. She tried to come after them, but she was restrained. Neighbors surrounded the house as my little sister was screaming bloody murder from the back of the ambulance. Yellow paint covered her hands and face as they stained the back window of the vehicle. All I wanted to do was let my sister have a good time. A detective called me about an hour ago and said that the ambulance veered off the highway and crashed, and the EMTs aboard were all dead, and Harper's body was never recovered. She escaped. This is all my fault. This is all my fault. Where Bad Kids Go, written by Anonymous. I must have been six or seven when I lived in Lebanon. The country was ravaged by war at the time, and murderers were common and frequent. I remember during a particular vicious era, when the bombings rarely stopped, I would stay at home sitting in front of my television watching a very, very strange show. It was a kid's show, 
that lasted about 30 minutes and continued strange and sinister images. To this day, I believe it was a thinly veiled attempt on the part of media to use scare tactics to keep kids in place. Because the moral of every episode revolved around very uptight ideologies. Stuff like, bad kids stay up late, bad kids have their hands under the covers when they sleep, and bad kids steal food from the fridge at night. It was very weird, and in Arabic, to top it off. I didn't understand much of it, but for the most part, the images were very graphic and comprehensive. The thing that stuck out with me the most, however, was the closing scene. It remained much the same in every episode. The camera would zoom in on an old, rusted, closed door. As it got closer to the door, strange and sometimes even agonizing screams would become more audible. It was extremely frightening, especially for children's programming. Then a text would appear on the screen in Arabic, reading, That's where bad kids go. Eventually, both the image and the sound would fade out, and that would be the end of the episode. About 15 or 16 years later, I became a journalistic photographer. That show had been in my mind all my life, popping in and out of my thoughts sporadically. Eventually, I had enough, and I decided to do some research. I finally managed to uncover the location of the studio where much of that channel's programming had been recorded. Upon further research and eventually traveling on site, I found out that now it was desolate and had been abandoned after the big war ended. I entered the building with my camera. It was burnt out from the inside. Either a fire had broken out or someone had wanted to incinerate all of the wood furniture. After a few hours cautiously making my way into the studio and snapping pictures, I found an isolated, out-of-the-way room. After having to break through a few old locks and managing to break the heavy door open, I remained frozen in the doorway for several long minutes. Traces of blood, feces, and tiny bone fragments lay scattered across the floor. It was a small room and an extremely morbid scene. What truly frightened me, though, what made me turn away and never want to come back, was the bolted, caged microphone hanging from the roof in the middle of the room. Sunrise, written by Anonymous Everyone loves a good scare. That's why you're browsing posts here, correct? You thought it would be fun just before you go to bed to scare yourself just a tad bit. Harmless fun of reading that, while getting your heart to race, never puts you in any real danger. So what's tonight's topic for your nightmares? Jeff the Killer with his go to sleep? Slender man silently stalking you wherever you venture? A Candle Cove experience that hits home so nostalgically for you that it seems true? Or maybe, just maybe, something new and unique that haunts you in an unexpected way? Whatever the case, you keep reading. Perhaps it's all just a big joke to you. Something you laugh off rather than take seriously. No one's holding a gun to your head, after all. You're doing exactly what you're doing of your own free will. You need to stop now. Stop reading this for your own sake. S-T-O-P You're still here. 
It's your own fault, you know. You've programmed it so deep in the back of your brain that just being told to stop is completely ignored. Optimistic about what's next, aren't you? That'll be your own undoing. Just taking things as they happen, without a care in the world, thinking your room is safe just because you have the only key to it. You have no idea how unsafe you really are. I know so much about you, yet you know nothing about me. The last time you ever acknowledged my mere presence was when you were still pissing the bed. You called me the monster in your room, or the boogeyman. You've just been blocking me out since then. Really. You told yourself it was nothing but loose clothing or a misshapen shadow cast by your own toys. I've never stopped watching, however. My dark red eyes stare at you even now, just out of your own peripheral vision. Chills down your spine, I see. Are you remembering the noose around my neck? The tattered dark rags I wear? The burlap sack over my face? Which I have for your sake, so you'll never know my true, unfathomable horror that hides within my decaying, long-nailed hands. There's that look. The same look you had all those years ago. One last request I see painted on your face. Who am I? Call me the Sunrise Killer. All coming back to you now, huh? Isn't it? Those unexplained murders you glanced by the paper over the years. I'm not bragging, but I won't deny them. Nothing but practice. For you. Every single one of you. The brave ones who've prepared so long for something to happen at that apex of night. It is darkest before dawn. So, for you. Just you. The most hopeful of them all. Look on the bright side. You still have an hour before sunrise. Headaches, written by D. Fulkerson. It's a stabbing pain, really. It, it comes suddenly, without warning. I don't know how many doctors I've seen. Migraine? Migraine medication didn't help. Tension headaches? Please. I'm fine most of the time, but when it hits, it hits right behind my eye. It attacks me like some tiny demon with an ice pick stabbing my eye. It comes without warning, without pity, and without remorse. It attacked me in the car once. I crashed into a parked car. I got sued. Really, it's, it's not fair. It wasn't my fault. When it attacks my eyes water and my nose runs, I, I can't see. All I feel is the stabbing angry pain trying to pop out my eye. It happened once at my job. I screamed. Everyone thought I was crazy. All it takes is one time doing something out of the norm and I'm labeled as crazy. No one understands. I can't sleep. I can't work. I can't drive. I just wait for the demon to attack. I tried medication, really, I, I did everything that they told me. Pain medication, seizure medication, yoga, meditating, everything. I tried drugs, all of them, really. 
I tried marijuana, Percocet, even heroin. My monster just laughs at the drugs. I got caught. I got caught with Percocet. My parents think I'm a criminal, but I'm not. It's not my fault. It's the stupid monster. It's, it's always the stupid demon. He screeches. He's coming. I don't know when. I don't know where, but he always comes back. The anticipation is almost worse than the stab. All day, I just wait. I just wait for the monster. Sometimes he comes. Sometimes he doesn't. I think he just laughs at me. It's just not fair. I didn't ask for this. One doctor said it was an ice pack headache. Well, that's what it feels like. A monster stabbing me. I hate him. I thought I could stab him back. I didn't want to go without a fight, you know? So I got my own ice pick. I got my own ice pick and I I sliced out my eye. Can you imagine? Plucking out your own eye? But it didn't help. It didn't help. I don't know what else to do. Suicide? Maybe? But maybe I can't get rid of this demon by finding him a new home. Maybe he'd like someone else. Maybe he'll move on and I'll be free. I'll get my life back. I know it's not fair, but it's not fair that I have to go through all this. It's just not fair. Maybe if someone else feels an ice pick through their eye, they'll understand, right? Maybe the demon will go to them. Anyways, that's why you're here. I'm sorry, really, I, I really am, but I don't know what else to do. Please, just please stop struggling. You're just going to make things worse. Ikbar Bigelstein Written by Stephen D. Harris When I was a small child, I was terrified of the dark. I still am, but when I was around six years old, I couldn't go a full night without crying out of one of my parents to search beneath my bed or in my closet for whatever monster I thought was waiting to eat me. Even with a nightlight, I would still see dark shapes moving around the corners of my room, or strange faces looking in on me from my bedroom window. My parents would do their best to console me, telling me that it was just a bad dream or a trick of the light. But in my young mind, I was positive that the second I fell asleep, the bad things would get me. Most of the time, I would just hide under the blankets until I became tired enough to stop worrying. But every now and then, I would become so panicked that I would run screaming into my parents' room, waking up my brother and sister in the process. After an ordeal like that, there would be no way anyone would be getting a full night's rest. Eventually, after one particularly traumatizing night, my parents had had enough. Unfortunately for them, They understood the futility in arguing with a six-year-old and knew that they would not be able to convince me to rid myself of childish fears through reason and logic. They had to be clever. It was my mother's idea to stitch together my little bedtime friend. She collected a large assortment of random pieces of fabric and her sewing machine and created what I would later refer to as Mr. Ikbar Bigelstein 
or Ick for short. Ick was a sock monster, as my mother called him. He was made to keep me safe while I slept at night by scaring away all the other monsters. He was pretty damn creepy, I had to admit. Honestly, looking back at it all now, I'm still impressed that my mom could think of something so strange and disturbing looking. Ichbar had the stitched together look of a Frankenstein gremlin with big white button eyes and floppy cat ears. His little arms and legs were made from a pair of my sister's black and white striped socks, and the half of his face that was green was made from my brother's tall football sock. His head could have been described as bulbous, and for his mouth my mom attached a piece of white fabric and sewed in a zigzag pattern to shape a wide grin of sharp teeth. I loved him at once. From then on, Ick never left my side, so long as if it was after dusk, of course. Ick didn't like the sun, and would get upset if I tried to bring him to school with me. But that was okay, I only needed him at night to keep away the boogeyman, which was what he was good at. So every night at bedtime, Ick would tell me where the monsters were hiding, and I would place him near the section of my room closest to the spookiness. If there was something in the closet, Ick would block the door. If there was a dark creature scratching at my window, Ick would be pressed up against the glass. If there was a big hairy beast under my bed, then under the bed he went. Sometimes the monsters weren't even in my room. Sometimes they would hide in my dreams and Ickbar would have to come with me into my nightmares. It was fun bringing Ick into my dream world, as he and I would spend hours fighting off ghouls and demons. The best part was, in my dreams, Ick could talk to me for real. How much do you love me? He would ask. More than anything, I would always tell him. One night, in a dream, after I had lost my first tooth, Ick asked me for a favor. Can I have your tooth? I asked him why. To help me kill the bad things, he said. The next morning at breakfast, my mom asked me where my tooth went. From what she told me, the tooth fairy didn't find it under my pillow. When I told her I gave it to Ikbar, she just shrugged and went back to feeding my little sister. From then on, every time I lost a tooth, I would give it to Ick. He would always thank me, of course, and tell me that he loved me. Eventually, though, I ran out of baby teeth, and I was beginning to get a little too old to still be playing with dolls. So it just sat there on my bookshelf, collecting dust, slowly fading away from my attention. Over time, the nightmares, however, became worse than ever. So bad that they even began to follow me to the waking world, terrorizing every dark corner or rustle in the bushes. After one particularly bad night, where I swore a pack of rabid dogs were chasing me, I got home to find something strange waiting for me in my room. There on my bed, standing fully upright, and a soft glow of the moonlight from my window, was Ikbar. At first, I just thought my eyes were playing tricks on me again. They had been all evening. So I tried to flick on the lights, another flick of the light switch, then another and another, with no change to the darkness. It was then that I started to get nervous. I backed away slowly, towards the door behind me, my eyes never leaving the shape of Ikbar's silhouette. My hand 
awkwardly outstretched behind, reaching for the doorknob. I was just about to get my ass out of there when I heard the door slam itself shut, locking me into the darkness. In nothing but shadows and silence, I stood frozen in place, not even breathing. For how long, I can't say, but after what I felt like a lifetime of cold fear, I heard the shrill, familiar voice. You stop feeding me, so why should I protect you? Protect me from from what? Let me show you. I blinked once and everything changed. I wasn't in my bedroom anymore. I was somewhere else. It wasn't hell, but the comparison wasn't far off. It was some sort of forest. A horrible, nightmarish place where partial embryonic abrasions hung from a canopy. And the ground swarmed the carnivorous insects. A thick fog wafted through the air, and with it, the stench of rotting meat, while lightning flashed across the night sky in the distance. I could hear the agonizing screams of something not quite human. My head throbbed like it was about to explode, the pain forcing out of a river of tears. In my mind, I heard his voice again. This is what your reality would become without me. I felt earth-shaking footsteps approaching fast. I'm the only one who can stop it. It was behind me now, huge and angry, hot breath across my back. Bring me what I need, and I will. I woke up before I turned around. The following day I raided my parents' closet for my brother's baby teeth, giving them all to Iqbar. Almost immediately, the night terror ceased, and I was more or less able to go on about my life as normal. From time to time, I would have to sneak into my little sister's room and snatch what was meant for the tooth fairy, or strangle one of the neighbor's cats and pry out its sharp little teeth. Anything to ward off the visions. Anything from a shark tooth necklace to a cavity-ridden tooth. I also began to notice that Iqbar would move about my room whenever I left for any length of time, rearranging my stuff and hanging additional curtains. He was even beginning to look more lifelike, somehow. In the right light, his tooth would glisten, and he was warm to the touch. As much as he creeped me out, I couldn't work up the courage to just destroy him, knowing perfectly well where that would leave me. So I went on collecting teeth for Ick throughout all of high school and college. The older I got, the more things I would learn to fear. The more teeth Ick would need to keep me safe. I'm 22 years old now, with a decent job, my own apartment, and a set of dentures. It's been almost a month since Ick's last meal, and the horrors are starting to crowd around me once more. I take a detour through a parking garage after work tonight. Found a man fumbling his car keys. His teeth were stained yellow from a lifetime of cigarettes and coffee. Even still, I had to use a hammer to get out the molars. When I got back to my apartment, he was waiting for me. On the ceiling, in the corner. Two white eyes and a mouth of razors. How much do you love me? 
he asked. More, more than anything, I reply, taking off my coat. More than anything in the world. Eyeless Jack, written by Anonymous. Hello, my name is Mitch. I'm here to tell you guys about an experience I had. I don't know if it's paranormal or whatever. Stupid words people use to describe supernatural phenomenon. But after that thing visited me, I believe in that paranormal trash. A week after I moved in with my brother, Edwin, after my house was foreclosed, I finished unpacking. Edwin liked the idea of me moving in, since we had not seen each other for about 10 years, so I was excited too. I soon fell asleep after I moved in. After that, one week, I heard rustling noises coming from the outside at about 1 in the morning. I thought it was a raccoon or, or something, but I just ignored it and tried falling back asleep. The next morning, I told Edwin about it, and he agreed. The next night, however, I thought I heard my window opening in a loud thump, as if something entered my room. I darted up and looked around my room, but I saw nothing. The next morning, Edwin dropped his coffee cup when he saw me. He held up a nearby mirror and I saw myself. I had a large gash in my left cheek. After I was rushed to the hospital, my doctor told me that I must have been sleepwalking, but then he showed me something that made my blood turn cold. He lifted up my shirt to reveal a sewn-up incision where my kidneys were. I stared in his eyes, my eyes widening. You somehow lost your left kidney last night. We don't know how, though I'm, I'm very sorry, Mitch. My doctor told me. The next night was my breaking point. Around midnight, I woke up and I truly saw something horrifying. I was staring face to face with a creature with a black hoodie and a dark blue mask with no nose or mouth staring down at me. The thing that scared me the most was that it had no eyes, just empty black sockets. The creature also had black substance dripping from his sockets. I grabbed the camera nearby on a mantle and took a picture. After I took the picture, the creature lunged at me and tried to claw open my chest to get into my lungs. I stopped it by kicking it in the face. As I ran out of my room, I grabbed my wallet. I would need the money. I ran out of my brother's house into the night. I eventually ended up in the woods nearby Edwin's house and tripped on a rock. I fell unconscious and I woke up in the hospital. My doctor entered the room, the same one who treated me before. I have good news and I have bad news, Mitch. My doctor started. The good news is that you had only minor injuries and your parents are going to pick you up, okay? I sighed with relief. The bad news is that your brother has been killed by some something. I'm so sorry. My parents took me back to Edwin's house to collect my remaining belongings which I did. Upon entering my room, I was scared, but remained calm. I grabbed my camera, then stopped dead in my tracks. In the hallway leading to my room, I saw Edwin's body and something small lying next to it. I picked up the small thing and entered into my parents' car, not mentioning Edwin's corpse. I looked at the thing I had picked up and nearly vomited. I was holding my stolen, half-eaten kidney with some black substance on it.
Gateway of the Mind, written by Anonymous. In 1983, a team of deeply pious scientists conducted a radical experiment in an undisclosed facility. The scientists had theorized that a human without access to any senses or ways to perceive stimuli would be able to perceive the presence of God. They believed that the five senses clouded our awareness of eternity, and without them, a human could actually establish contact with God by thought. An elderly man who claimed to have nothing left to live for was the only test subject to volunteer. To purge him of all his senses, the scientists performed a complex operation in which every sensory nerve connection to the brain was surgically severed. Although the test subject retained full muscular function, he could not see, hear, taste, smell, or feel. With no possible way to communicate with or even sense the outside world, he was alone with his thoughts. Scientists monitored him as he spoke aloud about his state of mind and jumbled, slurred sentences that he couldn't even hear. After four days, the man claimed to be hearing hushed, unintelligible voices in his head. Assuming it was only onset of psychosis, the scientists paid little attention to the man's concerns. Two days later, the man cried that he could hear his dead wife speaking with him, and even more, he could communicate back. The scientists were intrigued, but were not convinced until the subject started naming dead relatives of the scientists. He repeated personal information to the scientists that only the dead spouses and parents would have known. At this point, a sizable portion of scientists left the study. After a week of conversing with the deceased through his thoughts, the subject became distressed, saying the voices were overwhelming, and every waking moment, his consciousness was bombarded by hundreds of voices that refused to leave him alone. He frequently threw himself against the wall, trying to elect a pain response. He begged the scientists for sedatives, and he could escape the voice by sleeping. This tactic worked for three days until he started having severe night terrors. The subject repeatedly said that he could see and hear the deceased in his dreams. Only a day later, the subject began to scream and claw at his non-functional eyes, hoping to sense something in the physical world. The hysterical subject now said that the voices of the dead were deafening and hostile, speaking of hell and the end of the world. At one point he yelled, No heaven! No forgiveness! For more than five hours straight. He continually begged to be killed but the scientists were convinced that he was close to establishing contact with God. After another day, the subject could no longer form coherent sentences. Seemingly mad, and he started to bite off chunks of his flesh from his arm. The scientists rushed into the test chamber and restrained him to a table so that he could not kill himself. After a few hours being tied down, the subject halted his struggling and screaming. He stared blankly at the ceiling as teardrops silently streaked across his face. For two weeks, the subject had to be manually rehydrated 
due to the constant crying. Eventually, he turned his head and despite his blindness, made focused eye contact with the scientist for the first time in the study. He whispered, I have spoken with God and he has abandoned us. And all of his vital signs stopped. There was no apparent cause of death. It Wasn't a Reindeer, written by Michael Page. Christ, I muttered to myself. As the first flakes of snow started to fall, they gathered in a fuzzy clump over the windshield before my wipers cleared them away. I'd been waiting for 15, no, 20 minutes now, in my sister's driveway. Had I chosen to wait inside with her, I would have been dead by now thanks to her two gray cats. Cute little devils, but murder to my sinuses. Puffy eyes and clogged up throat, that's just what I needed. Every Christmas, our family made the annual trip to my grandparents' cabin, tucked away in the woods of Hope, Alaska, and I'd hoped to beat the heavy snowfall that was forecasted. Since my sister's license was suspended from a DUI, here I was, a hostage to time, with my finger tapping anxiously on the steering wheel. When my mother asked me to be the one to grab my sister, I had honestly dreaded it from the start. It wasn't that we hated one another. We just weren't as close anymore. After decades of constant arguments and bitter disagreements, we became distant, and our relationship fizzled. Yes, we are siblings, but it felt more accurate to call us the residue of what siblings once were. Finally, like the gates of Valhalla, her front door opened, and out she came. Her hair was frost green. The last time I'd seen her, it had been white. The time before that, it was violet. Got everything? I asked as she clambered her way into the passenger seat. Mm-hmm. She responded as she adjusted her glasses and stuffed a few bags in the back seat. And just like that, we were off. Hope was about a 30-minute drive and it didn't take long for the awkward silence to inflate both of us. It didn't help that the radio didn't work at all in my car, and that the broken auxiliary port made your music sound like it was having a seizure. By the time we reached the turnoff point of Hope Highway, the road was turning into a thick white sheet. Thankfully, on Christmas Eve night, the long stretch to Hope's small community was quick and vacant. The cabin was tucked away in a forest of trees five miles off the main road. As I made the turn, my sister cracked the window, pulled out a blunt, and lit it with her lighter. Want a hit? She asked. Snow crunched beneath us. Not while I'm driving. It's a straight path. We're practically there already. She took a drag and blew it out of the window. I want to just focus on this, alright? She huffed and pushed her glasses. If you're that worried, maybe slow down a bit then. There was the jab, a piece of bait to lure me into a fight. But I wasn't going to bite, not this time. She could live with us getting there faster. The drive was almost over, and soon I'd be in a warm living room with my feet up. A spiked eggnog in my hand and Bobby Helm's jingle bell rock in the air. I could already hear Uncle Jed spouting on about one of his crude jokes. Why does Santa Claus have such a big dude? My sister shrieked. 
jabbing a finger in my side and whipping my mind back into the windshield. The car had just finished winding around the thick trail. The large body of a reindeer stood in our path, eyes wide open and blank. It didn't move as the high beams found it, snapped into a panic. I twisted the wheel in a desperate swerve. The car veered greasily into the side of a fine spray of slosh. The reindeer, also known as a caribou, remained still, even as the bumpers swore inches from its nose. We came into a crunching halt off the main path. Jesus, I sighed, blessed with relief. Did we hit it? No, my sister said, leaning onto the window to check, while exhaling another plume of smoke. I wound the steering wheel back around and pressed on the gas. The wheels shrilled in place, kicking up globs of sleet but not moving an inch. Perfect, I moaned and unfolded myself from the seat to check it out. The two front tires have caked in black slush and practically swallowed in a mound of snow. I kicked at it, trying to clear off the icy debris from the treads beneath the wheel well. When that tired me out, I resorted to scraping it off with my fingers. Screw off, Prancer! I heard my sister call toward the dark silhouette of the reindeer, its antlers like gnarled fingers reaching for the treetops. Then she made a sort of startled yipe, followed by a, What the hell? I looked up from the scrim of snow. The reindeer was now standing tall on both of its hind legs. It looked strange, like a silly caricature you'd see in a kid's book, but out here, in the silence of the woods. It was a creepy image. The way its vague shape stood on just two legs held an almost human-like balance. For whatever reason, I realized then it didn't have a tail. Its muscular neck craned to the side and let out an unbearable scream, a miserable squeal of metal grinding against metal. My legs were like ice sculptures, cementing me to the spot as the shriek quieted to a succession of wet grunts. The reindeer dropped down to its original posture and stomped heavily. Pups of white vapor and strings of snot vented from its nostrils. It was no hunter, but it didn't take a lot to tell when a pissed off animal was about to charge. I leaped for the driver's seat, pulled the door open, and slammed it shut just as the muffled thud of hooves reached me. Antler scraped the door as its large body practically flew over the patch I had just been standing in. Fast. Very fast. My sister screamed as the large bulk of its fame wound back around and charged again, this time shattering the headlights and submerging us in darkness. Let's go already! My sister hollered in my ear. I'm trying, I hissed. The wheels continued to spin helplessly. We were trapped. The creature charged again, this time nailing the window. A cobweb of cracks bloomed near my sister's head. I searched for anything, literally anything, that I could use as a weapon. I was never really a good gun enthusiast, but at that moment, I'd have shaved my head and joined the secular monks if it meant having a Glock in my hand right then and there. After rattling the car once more, the reindeer finally appeared to lose interest and disappeared amidst the cluster of trees. Granted some time to breathe and think, we phoned our dad and told him about the situation. He was going to come down in his pickup and get us unstuck and out of this mess. 
I looked over at my sister, who was taking long and steady breaths between her fingers. Are you alright? I asked. What do you think? She grumbled. I told you to slow down. Another jab, and this time I wasn't going to have it. You want to be so useful? I yelled. Get out there and push, no? Then shut the hell up. I don't need it right now. She said nothing else, and neither did I. Returning once again to the pocket of silence that our relationship succumbed to. The sooner Dad's headlights peeked in the distance, the better. Suddenly she rolled the window down. What are you doing? I asked. Shh! She pursed her lips. Just listen. Humoring her, I waited. And sure enough, the sound reached me too. The quiet voice of a little girl, coming from the outside. Somebody. It whimpered. My sister unlocked the door and motioned to open it. I grabbed her wrist. What are you doing? She snapped. There's someone out there. Just wait a second. It's weird, isn't it? The voice continued to whine, choking between sobs and pleading for someone, anyone, to help her. I didn't like the way it sounded. The same lasting drawl between words, the same weeping sounds, like someone was hitting repeat on a speaker. Something wasn't right, and my instincts were hosting red flags left and right. Then my sister looked at me, and her expression wrapped into shock. She flung back, pinning both shoulders against the interior. Things that sounded like words bubbled up, but didn't quite make it out of her throat. I turned and saw what was looking at me. It had the face of a man, surrounded by the molted fur of a caribou's body. The skin was a mummified brown color, wound tightly around its long skull like old crinkled leather. Snowflakes landed upon its wide, expressionless eyes and melted into dark membranes of its pupils. It circled the car, bobbing its antlers and fogging up the window as it peered inside. My heart shook the walls of my throat. I locked eyes with my sister, unable to say anything behind the sheer disbelief. I should have grabbed my phone, snapped a photo, recorded a video, anything. But my thoughts were jangled. It then let out the same horrible scream. But I didn't see its tight, contorted lips open. The sound was coming from its neck. Small, fleshly orifices, flapping open like mouths, were converting the high-pitched shrill into the mimic cry of a little girl. Headlights glazed the area. My father's pickup came into view, paving its way down the path. The reindeer, or whatever the hell it was, ran off, vanishing once again into the snow-covered thicket. Nobody believed us. Why would they? If anybody had told me that story, I would have assumed that they were hopped up on some crazy psychedelic something. 
but the reality of that in which what I saw was cold, and it's something I still, to this day, can't fully swallow. Instead of sleeping that night, my sister and I did some research that led us to the myth of skinwalkers, beings of some sort capable of mimicking voices and disguising themselves as animals to lure people into the woods. After reading other accounts, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that that's what we witnessed out here. Every so often that night, I'd stare out at the window and eye the yard, wondering if I'd see that leathery face watching from the tree line. Neither I nor my sister ever made that trip again, much to the frustration of my family. But there was a silver lining. She and I have never been closer. Lightning, written by Alapanamo. We had just moved into a little ranch house in the suburbs. Storybook neighborhood. Quiet, friendly neighbors. Picket fence, the whole nine yards. Suffice it was to say that this was supposed to be a new start for me. A recently single dad and my three-year-old son. A time to move on from the previous year's drama and stress. I viewed the thunderstorm as a metaphor for this fresh start. One last show of theatrics before the dirt and grime of the past would be washed away. My son loved it anyways, even with the power out. It was the first big storm he'd ever seen. Flashes of lightning flooded the bare rooms of our house, imparting unpacked boxes with long, creeping shadows. And he jumped and squealed as the thunder boomed. It was well past his bedtime before he finally settled down enough to go to sleep. The next morning I found him awake in bed and smiling. I watched the lightning at my window, he proudly announced. A few mornings later, he told me the same thing. You're silly, I said. It didn't storm last night. You were only dreaming. Oh, he seemed somewhat disheartened. I ruffled his hair and told him not to worry. There should be another storm soon. Then it became a pattern. He would tell me how he watched the lightning outside his window at least twice a week, despite there never being no storms. Recurring dreams of the first memorable thunderstorm, I figured. It's easy to hate myself in hindsight. Everybody assures me there's nothing I could have done. No way I could have known. But I'm supposed to be the guardian of my child. And these are useless words of comfort. I constantly relive that morning. Making my coffee, pouring milk over my cereal, and picking up the newspaper to read about the pedophile local authorities had just arrested. It was front page stuff. Apparently this guy would select a young target, usually a boy, stake out their house for a while, and take flash photos of them through their window while they slept. Sometimes he did more. My stomach sank as the connection was made. At the time, it was merely something from a child's imagination. In retrospect, it is the scariest thing I've ever heard. About a week before the predator was caught, my son came up to me 
in his pajamas. Guess what? He asked. What? No more lightning at my window. I played along. Oh, that's nice. It finally died down, huh? No! Now it's in my closet. I've yet to see the photos police have collected. Mr. Smile, written by Alice Thompson. It was in early November of 1997 that a series of very strange sessions led a child psychologist in Maine to contact the authorities. It began when a patient of his began to tell him about one of their friends. This friend being imaginary as far as both the psychiatrist and the boy's parents were concerned. He called his friend Mr. Smile and would talk about him at a great length during some sessions. The boy called him Mr. Smile both because he would always be smiling and because when he was around the boy he said everything felt happy. He said that there was a feeling of everything being okay. The boy in question was being treated for serious issues due to his anger and depression. But when Mr. Smile was around, he said that all of that anger and sadness seemed to just disappear. He said that Mr. Smile wouldn't speak but rather just stand there at the foot of his bed he smelled like candy floss, and just being there, he made the boy feel calm and safe. The psychiatrist assumed that his imaginary friend was some sort of coping mechanism. The boy had developed to deal with the problems at home that had led him to this violent temper and thought nothing of it. Until another patient, a girl of about nine years old, also began talking about her imaginary friend, Mr. Smile, and then a boy of seven and then a boy of 12, and then a girl of 11. All in all, close to 15 separate patients all began to talk to him about Mr. Smile. The first few he'd put down to coincidence. After all, many children have imaginary friends, and the name and description of Mr. Smile were just generic, enough that it didn't concern him too much at first, but as more and more of his patients told him, about Mr. Smile, he began to grow concerned. He asked for more details. Every single one of them described him the same way, using the exact same words. Now there was no way that all of these children could be in contact with each other. Five of them, for instance, were currently being homeschooled and according to their parents, when he spoke to them, never really even left the house except when it was to accompany them on shopping trips and the like. There was no way that every single one of these kids could have rehearsed or prepared their statements together, which led him to a deeply disturbing conclusion. He spoke privately to each of the children's parents, one at a time. He avoided disclosing too much information, but told them that something troubling had cropped up in multiple sessions. With various patients, that he believed that there was a chance their child was at risk. He asked for their permission to discuss matters with the authorities and the parents gave their consent, provided they were kept in the loop as to what was going on. And so, over the course of the next week, the police came and talked to the children about their friend, 
They asked for details about his appearance, which they could not seem to describe apart from that smile that he was not like them. How he got into their house, everything he said or did while he was there. Because by this point, the psychiatrist, the parents and the police were all convinced that Mr. Smile was quite real and quite dangerous. The authorities had checked to make sure that they were not known predators living in the area, which they had confirmed there was no case. But it was quite clear that whoever Mr. Smile was, he was a real person who had been sneaking into the homes of their children at night. None of the children claimed to know how he got in. They said that they would just wake up and he'd be there at the foot of their bed. Sometimes they said he would be singing something but not in English. It sounded like a lullaby, they said. It made them feel safe. Finally, the children were asked to draw Mr. Smile, as they couldn't put it into words of how he looked. Each and every one of the children picked up a red crayon and proceeded to color in the entire page until it was just a rectangle of red. When asked about this, they insisted that they had drawn Mr. Smile. When asked where his head, arms, and legs were, they would insist that they had drawn those. They claimed that they had drawn a perfect picture of the man at the foot of their bed, and when they were told that they simply colored in the page and not drawn anything at all, they became deeply angry, feeling that they were being accused of lying and insisting that they had drawn a picture of the man they had seen. Acting more on a hunch than anything else, the psychiatrist decided to show one of the colored in the rectangles to the various children and ask them what it was. Each and every one of them, with no knowledge of what the picture was supposed to be or who had drawn it, and with no knowledge that the other children had been spoken to about this subject even existed, replied that that was the picture of Mr. Smile. Cameras and baby monitors were placed in the children's rooms so that they could be monitored. Many of the parents simply stopped sleeping altogether, staying up all night staring at the screens that displayed where their children slept. At no point did anyone enter or exit the bedrooms. No sound except for them snoring or occasionally talking in their sleep were heard over the baby monitors. There was no sign of Mr. Smile. After almost two weeks of this, many of them began to doubt that Mr. Smile had ever existed. Other psychiatrists since have put the whole thing down to some strange shared delusion that while it couldn't be explained, yet did not have any basis in reality. Some suggested that maybe the whole Mr. Smile thing had its basis on TV or a film that children had all watched leading them all to dream up something similar. Then one of the boys went missing. The camera in his room had gone dead at around 2 in the morning. His mother had run to check in on him, only to find his room empty. It had literally taken her less than a minute to run to his room. There was no possible way for him to leave or to be taken and be out of her sight in the time it took her to leave her bedroom and run towards his, but he was gone. She said that there was a smell like cotton candy in the room. The search for the boy turned up nothing. No one had seen anything strange or unusual around the room, 
or the home before or during the disappearance, and no trace of him was ever found. It was less than a week later that one of the girls who had spoken of Mr. Smile vanished as well. Then another, then another of the boys. One by one, each of them began to disappear until only four remained. The four remaining children began to talk about how Mr. Smile and his friends were going to take them away soon. When asked about these friends, they talked about how Mr. Smile lived with the other smiling men in the happy place, and that he would take them there soon. They said that there were a lot of people there already, and that in the happy place, everything was beautiful. They said that they knew about it because Mr. Smile talked to them in their heads, because he couldn't talk like other people, and that he would show them pictures in their heads of the place that they were going. Things began to get increasingly disturbing. After a few weeks, the children began complaining about headaches and nausea. Their schools reported that they had begun to suffer hallucinations, and two of them started complaining that they didn't like the place that Mr. Smile was showing them anymore. One began screaming for half an hour, acting as if they were having a fit and screaming for the colors to stop, that the colors were horrible and that they needed them to go away. One of the children claimed that Mr. Smile was talking to them in their heads all the time now and was telling them things, terrible things, but that they couldn't talk about it, that they mustn't because then their parents would know about the terrible things too. The psychiatrist asked them to write down what Mr. Smile was saying, promising that they would show it to no one, managing to gain the trust of one of the boys enough that he agreed. The contexts of the book are known only to him and the authorities, but whenever anyone involved has been asked about it, they just get really quiet and quickly find an excuse to change the subject. The children stopped sleeping, footage from the security camera showing them sitting bolt upright, their eyes unblinking, just staring at the wall without moving or making a sound. Sedatives did nothing. One of the girls began cutting strange circular marks into her skin while two of the boys ceased communicating in English altogether. The language they spoke was never identified, and despite numerous people being asked to listen to them, they could not translate what they were saying. By the start of 1999, all four of the children had vanished into thin air. There was no trace of who took them. Searches have turned up nothing to this day, with no indication of where they are or if they're even dead or alive. No suspects have ever been found either. All four of them appeared to simply vanish into thin air much like the others, all of whom also remain missing, their disappearances unexplained. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode.